Good afternoon, everyone. have. And I hope to be able to provide an honest perspective on what it's been like and the things that have shaped my opinions on education throughout this journey. And as part of that, I'm also keen to hear from you. So do you have any comments or questions? Um, use the hashtag TT Radio on Twitter slash X or ask away in the Podbean app because I'd love to hear your input too. And so just to start this off, I wanted to give some background on what got me into teaching in the first place. And I'll avoid just sort of reeling off my CV, but there, there's been a, it's been a sort of a strange journey and day, and there's been sort of lots of things that have built up that pyramid that actually got made me make that decision to get me into teaching. And actually what got me back into teaching after I embarked on a different career. So school was something that was difficult for me. I, I didn't particularly like school, uh, particularly secondary school. It was something I went to, I went to an all boys comprehensive school and it was, it was quite a austere place, shall we say. I mean, it was a school we had to call our female teacher's mom, for example, which was far too easy to confuse with mum and embarrassment always ensues. It, so it was, it was, it was one of these sorts of places. And I, I was not an easy student. I was, I wouldn't say I was necessarily somebody who'd muck around tons in lessons, but I was always very chatty, um, always quite anti-authoritarian. I think I think it's safe to say at school I, I didn't respond well to authority or um, that that sort of uh, that sort of really big hierarchies that we have in school. So I just I remember well, I was in sort of a band at the time with some mates, and we, we liked bands like Metallica and Iron Maiden, and I I grew my hair long and when I was told to cut it off because that was not in line with the school dress code, I said no. And, and and I ended up getting suspended for that, you know, for not getting my hair cut. And it's sort of experiences like that just make me think, I, I just it just really puts me off school. What it didn't put me off, though, was learning. And that was something that I have basically always really enjoyed. I enjoy learning. I've enjoyed... Um, I, I like knowing stuff and, and I actually enjoyed most of my lessons and that's things like um, actually just being in the classroom, learning about all these different topics, whether it was English, whether it was Latin, I went to a comprehensive school that did Latin back in, <laughs> apparently that was a thing back then, uh, science, geography, history, I, I liked all of it and um, so it was just, that's what I enjoyed, I liked learning, I didn't necessarily like being told what I needed to learn. And I didn't like exams and that sort of thing. I, I 
always just thought in my head, why do we need to sit down in a hall at the end of a year for a few hours? And that's the test of everything that we've learned over years of education. I th- so these sorts of things were just, this was just always what was going through my mind. And, 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 and sort of many of these opinions I've sort of carried through into adulthood, although hopefully with a bit more maturity in how I express them and talk about them. And I, I do come from a family of teachers. So in terms of my conduct, conduct at school, constantly being in detention and that sort of thing, you know, it wasn't something that they sort of particularly liked. And so my mum's a teacher, my uncle was a teacher, my nan's a teacher. I've got cousins who are teachers. So I've got lots of, I've got lots of teachers in my family and I wouldn't say any of them are particularly conventional teachers either. A lot of them have worked in sort of alternative provision schools, special needs schools, uh, boarding schools and that sort of thing. So for a while, my mum and dad were boarding house parents. So I spent a bit of time living at the school that they um, they were house parents at. I didn't actually go to it myself. I went to the comprehensive. And um, my uncle was also a boarding house master at a, another school. And both both my sisters met their partners at school and... And I could just see that there were these communities at these boarding schools that were just 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 very different to what I was experiencing in my comprehensive school and um and and, it, and it's it's something that I feel is 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 quite hard to really put your finger on why that's that's the case what what are the things that make these communities really quite tight knit what is it that makes the alumni community that that's um still so active and involved in their schools continuing to invest back in to the schools that they were part of and i'm still thinking about those questions now but anyway after i left my secondary school i did fine in my gcse's and uh, um not amazingly but i did fine i went to sick form and I, I really liked my sick form i had I was a lot more mature when I went there, and um, it, it, I had a really good group of friends. I liked my lessons, and I was still a bit anti-authoritarian, but again, had that maturity to be able to express it a bit differently through things like student council and and whatnot. And that sort of led me on to going to university, and this is where things for me just sort of really started to take off. Now, I decided to go to the University of Southampton. Uh, to study geology with marine biology. It's a really weird degree combination. And uh, as far as I'm aware, Southampton Uni no longer offer this degree combination. I don't think anywhere else in the world offers it either. And I'm pretty sure the tiny number of people who actually also did the same degree combo that I did, I think I probably know all of them. It was so it was but I liked it because I think I wasn't really set on a career in science or, or not necessarily in geology or in marine biology. I I wanted to keep my education sort of horizons as broad as possible. I wanted to study a bit of everything. And back in school I geology was always my favourite subject because it had a bit of science, it had a bit of humanities, it had a bit of sociology, a bit of everything. And you could sort of tie it together with any other subject. So I was keen on my music and there was always geography and music and all that sort of thing. And, uh, and I, again, I had a really good experience at university, really good group of friends. And, um, and I was sort of quite keen on, um, I was quite keen on just making the most of my university experience. So I got involved with everything I could get involved in. And it was sort of, yeah, it was around this time I started getting, I sort of came to the realization that I was somebody who was better talking about science than I was actually doing it. It's not to say I didn't enjoy uh, being in the lab and and doing 
lab work or going out on field trips. And I absolutely love the field trips, but it was more being outdoors and going walking and stuff that I enjoyed. Uh, I wasn't necessarily, I wasn't sort of naturally good at, at all the sort of investigation side of it. But what I was good at is, was, was, was talking about it. I was good at writing. I was good at presenting. And I got really interested in going into a media career, uh, sort of becoming a science writer, maybe doing some television, um, that sort of thing. And that, so that's really where I started to direct um, my interests. And an opportunity came up at Southampton to um, work for sort of one day a little spin-off semi-businesses it's called Discover Oceanography. And they took school kids out on the, um, the university research vessel, the RV Callista, out onto the Solent to do uh, marine biology research. And I, I got a job there. So my job was helping out doing the, the lab work on the boats and uh, reeling in the nets and that sort of thing where we saw creepy crawlies and stuff that live in the ocean. Loved it. And I, I, I sort of really enjoyed this sort of thing. And we went down to Lyme Regis for the Lyme Regis fossil show and all that sort of thing. And yeah, I, I, I was good at it and I really enjoyed it. And it was... And that was sort of my first taster of of being a teacher. It was being on on the research vessel with groups of school kids, uh, mostly sort of key stage three and key stage two ages. And again, yeah, it's something I, I really valued and I really enjoyed. And it was around this time that a cousin of mine um, went home educated. My auntie, for various reasons, decided to pull her out of school and educate her from home, and. This was sort of circa 2009, 2010. And there wasn't really the same provisions for home education as there is now, particularly with um, practical subjects like science. And so what happened is my auntie decided to start up a, a science club for home educated kids in, in her area. So they hired out um, the local village hall and they invited people to go and do sort of science workshops and lectures and that sort of things. And I was invited by my auntie to do this. Bearing in mind, I was 19, 20 at the time. I was still doing my degree. I, far from being a fully fledged scientist, but I did a few, I did a few um, lectures and, and workshops at this science club. And I brought along some rock specimens that some from my own private collection and some I borrowed from university and, I did another one on oceanography, we talked about ocean currents and did some practicals with rubber ducks and that sort of thing. And it, and it went down really, really well. And I, I got really good feedback uh, from my auntie, but also from the kids who, who really enjoyed these sessions. And there was a really wide age group. So we're talking sort of primary school kids up to A-level. So you had to sort of think about how we're going to incorporate all of these kids into the session. And... So that sort of led me into taking a module at university it's, uh, as an undergraduate called the Undergraduate Ambassador Scheme. And this was a final year module where they took students and placed them into schools to get some education teaching experience and to do some research into education techniques. And so I, I, I applied to be on this module and I was accepted and I was placed in a primary school which I was a bit disappointed by because um, I didn't want to work in a primary school. I wanted to be in a secondary school. But I thought, oh, primary would be boring. It'd be too too many annoying little snotty kids and that sort of thing. But I got to this school. It was in um, a sort of place called Chandler's Ford, just north of Southampton, a quite, quite sort of a, a leafy middle-class town. And I, I absolutely loved it. 
and got placed with a year three, year three class, so we sort of eight, nine-year-olds. Um, and I, I really settled into it quite quickly, and I, I found myself really enjoying this experience. And we had to do a research project, and I'm ashamed to say I actually did something into learning styles because we all know how effective they are um but so that but this was this was a long time ago in my defense and i didn't i didn't really care so much about the research project i just liked being in the school and i liked um d- doing the doing the the uh, module and he, so even after that module finished i stayed on working as a teaching assistant there so i stayed there for the rest of the academic year working with this year three class one day a week and so as the time at university drew to a close, and I was thinking, what am I going to do after? What do I want to do for a job? And I, I wanted to travel. I wanted to, I didn't take a gap year or anything like that, and I wanted to travel. And then, But there was always the issue of I didn't have any money to do any travelling with, so what could I do? And someone suggested to me, why don't you go and work in an international school, do a TEFL qualification maybe, and do some travelling with that? And my auntie, so this is the same auntie um, who ran the science club that I got involved in. She actually forwarded me a list of jobs that were going at this school in South India. And I thought, yeah, I could do that. And they had a job opening for somebody who could do learning support in a primary, so working with the SEND students there. I thought, this is right up my alley. This is, this is something I could do really well. So I applied for this job in learning support. And... Um, and I went into the interview there, so I got the interview. And the people, the interview panel wasn't quite what I was expecting, it has to be said. I was expecting somebody from primary and somebody from the learning support team to, or the Senko maybe, to uh, interview me. But nope, we had the head of science there and the head of geography interviewed me. And they said in my interview, if we were to hire you, we'd like to hire you to teach middle school geography. So that's key stage three. Would that be okay? And I thought, Hmm. <laughs> I have no experience whatsoever teaching um, secondary level. I've taught a little bit in primary because I did some teaching when I was working at the uh, with year three. But I have no experience in secondary. I haven't been in a secondary school since I left school. Um, but because it's an interview, I just said yes. And this is this has kind of been my attitude throughout life: is just say yes to stuff and figure it out later even if you can't do it to just figure it out later so I said yeah yeah I can do that and yeah I I I accepted the job when it was offered and next thing I knew I was on a flight to India so I as soon as I graduated age of 21 I flew to India and I worked at the school right down in Tamil Nadu and um I was up in the mountains it's beautiful absolutely beautiful gorgeous mountain hill station in, in 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 India and I settled into it quite quickly, and I'd, I'd committed to a year-long contract. They wanted me to accept a three-year contract. Um, I, I couldn't commit to that at the time. So, because to be honest, my thinking at the time was I, I just wanted to go travelling. I wanted to get a bit of experience outside of the south of England. And with long school holidays and a salary, I thought it was the best way I could go and achieve that. So that's still what I was thinking. It was, it was less about the teaching, more about the travelling. But uh, yeah, I settled into it really quickly. And I think by the October half term, I basically decided that I was going to stay for three years. And that that was a good decision because the other geography teachers in the department, they were a married couple. Uh, they 
been teaching each for 40 years. Uh, so very, very experienced, excellent teachers that I was working with. They, they both decided to retire and return to the UK. So I found myself at the end of my first year teaching. I had a, a tutor group as well. I was also involved in a bit. I did some science teaching as well as geography. And I was doing some music. I was doing outdoor education. I was doing all sorts of things. Um, teaching A-level. I took over the A-level and IGCSE geography. And somebody else joined me. She was um, also really young. She was 21, so she was a year younger than I was. She she and I were the geography department. Neither of us qualified, neither of us with any experience teaching. And what was what was absolutely fascinating about this is, is we did really well. When we got our results coming back, I was absolutely terrified about what the A-level and IGCSE results would be like at the end of my first year teaching um, these qualifications. Because of course, this would really reflect well on me having after or well or badly, depending. Because of course, after these students have been taught by super duper experienced teachers who got really very good results, I was terrified of them just plummeting off a cliff and it would be my fault. And that would be the, the changing variable. But please say they were good. And we actually got some very good results and um, including people who got sort of best results in the world uh, for IGCSE and A-level. And, and so that's something that's always stayed in my mind. We got really good results at this school, despite not having much in the way of resourcing. We didn't have um, computers in most classrooms. Some classroom computers and projectors, most did not. So it was very much you had a board and you had textbooks. That was your resources for teaching. So that was something you really had to adapt to. Um, we did, So we didn't have sort of high levels of technology. We didn't have tons of resources. Um, staff were some often not qualified, like me, for example. Um, so we weren't qualified teachers. We didn't really have an experience either. So it's something I constantly reflect on. What was it that made us allowed us to get really good results at this school because it wasn't the technology and it wasn't um level of experience that we had as teachers so that was what really got me into teaching first of all i worked at this international school and i stayed there for three three and a bit years in the end i absolutely loved it it was such a good experience in so many ways um but i didn't stay in teaching after that so i'm just going to take a break now while we listen to our sponsors and uh, the news. And just when we come back from that, sort of just lead on to a bit sort of where I went after that and why I decided to make some changes to that. So let's have a go and listen from our sponsors. Are you looking for lesson planning materials to kickstart the new term? We've got you covered. The Day is a global online resource that turns the news into lessons. We're offering listeners a free resource on Andrew Tate that you can find on thedaynews.co forward slash Tate. Inspire personal development and critical thinking for your students by downloading the Tate Debate today and feel more confident addressing sensitive topics with your class. Visit thedaynews.co forward slash Tate to find out more. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. 
Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, -face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools... This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. We have previously reported on the issue of student accommodation, focusing on rising costs and declining quality of places to rent. Shortages of suitable housing have further added to problems for many. This week, the BBC featured reports of protests by some students at what they describe as appalling conditions and extortionate rents at a university-owned block of flats near the University of Northampton. According to the report, residents paid £153 a week for a single ensuite room, but there were complaints of a lack of running water. A university spokesman said it had no record of complaints. However, a spokesperson for the student group said the complaints were repeated year after year. The university further said that the rent issue had been resolved as students had paid an additional charge caused by an admin error. This has now been refunded. An apology has also been issued. Staying with higher education, BBC Newsnight reports on the rise of anti-Semitism at UK universities. The Union of Jewish Students said the spike was nothing like anything seen before. The report comes at a time when experts have also warned of rising reports of Islamophobic incidents. Groups who monitor hate crimes in the UK say the conflict is now being played out on university campuses nationwide. The government has provided £43 million to protect interfaith communities and said perpetrators of hate crime would face the full force of the law. The Guardian featured a report that schools in England are using Airbnb-style strategies to raise funds. The article says many are renting out every available space from classrooms to canteens. Renting out spaces for community use is not new, but there has been an increase in the innovative use of spaces. One primary school says it has rented out its light-filled white corridor for photo shoots, whilst another offers a stationary double-decker bus, used as a classroom, to those who might want to make quirky films. Dedicated online platforms are helping schools make the most of their spaces beyond the obvious playing fields and main halls, with the founder of the Sharesy website saying they have even helped schools rent out their car parks for puppy training lessons. The line between education and commercialism is becoming increasingly blurred, as school leaders attempt close the funding gap especially after a government said it had miscalculated funding announced in July, slashing £370 million from the announced budget. Schools Week feature issues being faced by specialist settings in the North East, as the area, like many others, sees significant increases in the numbers of children and young people with additional needs. This is in addition to an already large backlog of those needing additional support. The piece by Chris Zaraga, Director of Schools North East, describes a system that, by the halfway point of the autumn term, is already at capacity. 
specialist and alternative provisions are struggling to cope. While Sir Ragger accepts that this is a national problem, he points out that it is particularly bad in the North East, as in the 10-year period between 2012 and 2022, there was a 145.43% increase in the number of pupils with an EHCP being suspended from schools. He also argues that the solution cannot simply be more or larger specialist settings, but improve support for pupils within mainstream schools. Zaraga ends with a call for a strategic plan, more resources and expertise from across the sector to be listened to. In Northern Ireland schools, already dealing with action short of strike by teachers from five teaching unions due to issues over pay, could now face further disruption. The BBC reports that there will be strike action on the 16th of November by members of Unison, Unite, the GMB and NIPSA, who, between them, represent thousands of non-teaching staff. These include bus drivers, school catering staff, classroom assistants and cleaners. The strike action is over the failure to reform pay and cuts to the overall education budget. BBC News Northern Ireland has been told that the action will mean that many, if not all, schools will have to close. Finally, a primary school in Birmingham made the local news after it introduced a small farm which includes alpacas, goats and chickens. In spring, it also houses lambs needing to be hand-reared after being rejected by their mothers. St Michael's C of E Primary School is in one of Birmingham's most deprived wards. But the farm was introduced to help encourage children and the wider community to engage more broadly. Nearby residents have also created an allotment which is used by the school and the community. Children take part in looking after the plants and animals, although scooping up the poop remains a weekly task for the school's head teacher. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Before the break, I was talking about the experiences and the journey that I've taken within education and teaching. And it sort of led me to working in this international school out in South India and and just, just how much I enjoyed that experience and how much I enjoyed that time. And be, being in my early 20s uh, and singles, I had no commitments or anything like that. It was it was a really fantastic experience. I had these nice long holidays. It was a boarding school, so holidays were quite a bit longer than they even are in the state sector to go travelling. So during my school holidays, I went to Nepal and I did uh, trekking up in Nepal, the Annapurna circuit. I went scuba diving in the Andaman Islands. Uh, I went did the sort of Golden Triangle, the classic India tour. I did all these sorts of things. Um, it no, this was an absolutely fantastic experience and. It's 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 shaped my worldview and my opinions on on many aspects of education a lot, and so my my advice to anyone who's training to be a teacher or is interested in becoming a teacher is just say yes, so take those opportunities, take the um, take the initiative, and and be confident. I think. I think one of the dangers a lot of us have is is we can talk ourselves out of doing things. We can think, is this a sensible idea? Here are all the reasons why I shouldn't do it. And certainly when I was at university as an undergraduate, I, I was planning to go to India to do a career that I wasn't actually, or do, do, do a job rather, it wasn't a career at this point, that I wasn't actually set on doing as a career. It was just, I say for me, it was an opportunity to just go traveling and that sort of thing. 
And there was a danger that I'd talk myself out of it. Surely I want to be earning more money working in geology. I could be earning more money working as a mining geologist or something like that. Um, don't I want to save up to buy a house or get a car or get married and have children? All, all of these sorts of things that are the things we're supposed to do. And what about all the, all the visa was complicated? That That's a sign that I shouldn't go. And But, but I, you know, I persevered. I didn't really overthink it I, ju- I just went and I think nowadays I probably changed my mind a little bit I'll probably be thinking about um talking myself out of all the practicalities now I'm a bit older and I've got sort of other demands upon my on, on my life and so but do take those opportunities if, if the opportunity to go and work in an international school comes up or if that's something you're interested in apply there are lots of jobs out there and um in lots of different parts of the world and I was working in South India. The salary was not enormous. Um, it was sort of a local level salary, so it was perfectly adequate for India. You can earn more money in other countries, but, you know, take your pick. Don't sort of overthink those things. So, you know, I was, I was in India for three three years, three and a bit years, and I, I'd done an entire... I'd taken my tutor group through middle schools, so years seven, eight, and nine. I'd, I'd taken a full cohort of students through IGCSE and A-level and, and I felt like it was time for a change. And I, I returned to the UK. And that's when I left teaching. I had such a good experience in India. And I just thought, do I want to... Um, I don't want to sully that memory by teaching in the UK, where when you listen to the media, everyone will just tell you that teaching in the UK sucks, behaviours appalling, all of these um, the salaries rubbish, or all of these reasons not to go into teaching. And and I was really put off it. I was really discouraged from continuing in education because everyone told me it was a rubbish career, even though I'd had this time teaching and I loved it. And my mum was a teacher, my uncle's a teacher, and lots of um, lots of people I knew were teachers and they clearly enjoyed their jobs. But it was... It was um, so anyway, I did leave teaching. I, I did some part-time work because I worked as an ecologist for a while. Um, and then I sort of came back to my original sort of career plan, which was to go into media. So I was becoming a science writer, becoming um, uh, maybe get so television, radio, that sort of thing. Um, I, I got a job in publishing. So I published um, journals for the Institute of Physics. I later worked for the Geological Society of London. So I was there for nearly five years at the Geological Society of London, um, doing all kinds of bits and bobs for them. And I did a, I did a master's as well in that time. And it was um, it was it, you know this was really good experience. I mean, I I was really enjoying um, working for these learning societies. I worked for quite a few of them, and I did a lot of science writing as well for various magazines. I did some media work for like BBC Click, and for example, the radio show, tech show, which I so all these good experiences that I did. But it was something that was always sort of in the back of my mind. So I really liked going into schools, and when I I remember when I was working for the Institute of Physics. Uh, one of my um, one of the uh, school local schools in Bristol was talking about um, we needed some people to come in and talk about uh, the the um, solar eclipse that was happening, and I thought, yeah, I'm up for that. I could go into a school and do a little workshop on the solar eclipse. This was a, a, a small little primary school in Bristol, and I really enjoyed that. And I was at the Geological Society of London. I got to talk about. Um, I got to talk about, go to things like Lime Regis Fossil Show and talk about rocks and stuff, which I really enjoyed. Um, 
And so, so it's always a lot of these education related things that I was doing as sort of like secondary to my main job that I really liked. Um, so I just had a question here from Paul Foz and he's asked me what's the topic for today. And it's a bit of a different one for today's show because um, I'm halfway through my PGCE now and I um, sort of just talking about my journey into education, what led me into it and and why why I left it for a little while. That's sort of where I am now and what made me decide to go back into it and why I've actually decided now to commit to doing a PGCE having worked unqualified and um, so it's yeah, a bit different different sort of show it's a bit more me sort of just reflecting upon it and the things that have shaped my opinions um, on education my experiences and and hopefully just share with other people who maybe work in education or are looking or interested in working in education what my advice would be what what I would say to those people so yeah I, I, I worked for these um, societies for a while and what and then sort of lockdown happened and that was a bit of a bummer for me because I lived by myself and I was suddenly plunged into um isolation but living by myself in a quite a small flat in the countryside and I sort of found myself thinking yeah I'm not enjoying this anymore and it I I really liked working for the Geological Society of London that's where I was at the time I, I, it's a really fantastic um, learned society, and I, I have a geology degree. I absolutely live and breathe natural history. I love it. But but I, I was isolated now from my colleagues. I didn't get to talk to them every single day. We didn't get to go on our walks at lunchtime. I certainly wasn't getting to go into schools anymore or um, do any of these sorts of things that the things I sort of really enjoyed. And um, I made the decision to leave during lockdown and... Um, I, I I decided to go freelance for a while, so I did. I focused purely on my freelance writing, and I did things like the I did some freelance work in Bristol for events and that sort of thing. And I, I decided then because it was constantly nagging at me, you need to go back into teaching. That's the thing you like doing. Um, and I, I, but I sort of talked myself out of it. It's like no, I don't want to do teaching. I don't want to teach, even though clearly I liked it and I was good at it. So. I, I thought I did apply for the PGCE. I did it in the end. I applied for the PGCE, and I while I was waiting for September to roll on, I got a job working as a teaching assistant back in primary school. I worked it for the year six class. Loved it. It was quite a challenging school. It was a, certainly wasn't like when I was TAing before. It's a leafy, middle-class, sort of suburban uh, town. This was a um, this was this was a city school quite has to be said quite a sort of deprived area um behavior was was challenging um it, yeah it was a challenging experience but i loved it and i loved the teaching team that we had at the school and i still talk to them regularly still talk to these these guys regularly on whatsapp we're part of a group We've got quite a, a sort of close-knit um sort of group of teachers and that, and that was the thing I liked it was the community that I liked of the staff and the students and I found that such just so rewarding and I started my PGCE in September last year uh, teaching geography at a school in in um, sort of near, near where I lived in in Bristol and it started off really well and, and I, I really sort of found myself enjoying talking about geography and again I was in secondary now having worked in primary got to teach geography as a subject I love doing a bit of science bit of um 
bit of bit, bit of science, bit of um, humanities. I did some uh, PSHE and all that sort of thing as well. And um, unfortunately, I, saw, I did sort of have some health problems uh, around Christmas time last year, um, which led me to having to take a break from the course. I decided to it was easier to take a break from the course, take some time out from it. Um, and I again, I got a job as a teaching assistant, and then eventually I started cover teaching. And I, I wanted to get a completely different, some completely different experience to what I was doing. I'd worked in mainstream, I'd worked in a private school, international school, um, worked in primary, worked in secondary. And I wanted to do something completely different, just something that really contrasts with what I've done so far. So I got a job in an SEMH school. So this is social, emotional and mental health. Um, so these, a lot of the students I had were excluded from their mainstream schools. Uh, they um, and, and in a couple of cases, they'd even been transferred from pupil referral units. You know, this this is a completely different kettle of fish to what I knew. And I, I was teaching maths and I was teaching some humanities. And again, had a tutor group, all sorts of things. Um, but again, it was again, it was another experience that I really valued. And yes, it was so hard. It was such a hard um, place to be in because you, you don't you, the respect isn't something that you just magically walk in and get. You you might be an adult, you might be an authority figure, but the kids aren't going to respect you straight off. They don't know you, they don't. Um, that they might even be a bit worried about you. They might have had so many different teachers in their time um, or teaching assistants. They've never had a continuity of adults. They haven't been used to having um, somebody who's going to stick around for them. And I, I was always quite, and I, I was always quite clear that I was leaving this school in in the summer holidays and going back onto my PGCE program, uh, having done a term of it. And and I did feel quite conflicted about this because. I felt I felt really quite a strong affinity to these students, and I I wanted to be have, have to provide them some continuity, and I I had some good relationships with many of them that took time to develop. There was a lot of emotional investment that went into that, and I I learned a huge amount about um, a, being a pastoral presence for students who come from often very difficult backgrounds, who've experienced in many cases quite horrific things, and. We had some training on sort of trauma-informed teaching, trauma-informed education, which I have found extremely valuable in in my career, um, and 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 it's it's something that's really resonated with me since. Um, so, yeah, I, I this is something I, I'm so I'm glad I've had that experience and been able to do a really wide variety of um, things within my career. And, and and that's why I'm now and I'm now back on the PGCE and I've I've completed another half term, which brings me up to sort of being halfway through now. So we've got some people in the lobby, and I, I'd like to, if any of you've got questions or comments or you, it's something you'd like to share about your experiences, do feel free to call in. Um, do feel free to call in and um, and share share what uh, well anything you like. If you can, you can type questions as well in the chat or contact me on. Twitter slash X um, using the hashtag TT Radio. So, you know, I've sort of talked at length there about about what I've done. I said I wasn't going to just reel off my CV, but that's sort of kind of what I've done. Um, but th- there's been just been so many things within my um, 
so many things within my journey so far that just shaped what I have, where I am now. So, oh, we do have a caller. Um, so just uh, accept that. Uh, Paul, can you hear me? I can. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Um, it's nice to, nice to have, you, have you call in. Um, uh, what did you want to share or ask? No, it was just it was interesting hearing your journey and um, hmm. and that you that the PGC that you, you've been doing you sort of it's been for whatever reason split. You know, I was just wondering was was the do you notice any differences from when you first started that to then taking it up again now? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm I'm actually a different school as well. So for various reasons, my original school um, couldn't host me for this this year so i've moved school i've actually moved house as well to um to to go to attend this different school and it's been it's a very different sort of schools they are and 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 i've learned an awful lot so during that break i took from my pgc originally having worked in this semh school and and actually been a teacher um without another teacher observing me and that sort of thing no that's that's definitely given me an awful lot more confidence i think because my confidence at Christmas time around last year was, was actually quite low. And I think I probably came into my PGCE maybe a little bit overconfident because I had had quite a lot of experience working internationally, working as a teaching assistant, I've done lots of workshops and stuff in schools. And compared to a lot of other trainees who may never have worked in a school before or had any experience, I was certainly a different place in my journey. But I think what I came to realise is that Every school is very, very different. They have different systems and different um, uh, different expectations. There's always going to be um, different demands as well, and particularly working in a mainstream secondary, you've got much bigger classes than what I was used to. Um, you, you've got a far bigger range of abilities as well, uh, than, again, than what I was used to in terms of resourcing. That was very varied. So yeah, it, it has been different, and now I think now back on the course, I'm feeling really good about it. Actually, it's it's been really positive, and having this show, having been able to talk to lots of different teachers, um, very experienced teachers, has been great. And I, and every single time I've talked to people on this show, I've always thought, yeah, I'm going to try that next lesson, or I'm going to try that um, in in this particular lesson with this particular student, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and I I found. So I'm at a very different sort of school now, and I am enjoying. It's a really nice school. I feel really supported by my mentor and the uh, the rest of the geography department. I get to teach a little bit of um, uh, teach a little bit uh, PSHE as well, and I think that's something I've really enjoyed doing. Um, having worked in this SEMH school because I was sort of quite interested in the pastoral side of things too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I've. Um, I've- I think you're. Um, I think you're gonna have something valuable after finishing your PGC. I've I, I've worked at this school that I've been at for about two and a half years now, and before then I was at a couple of other schools on sort of one year contracts or maternity leaves, and before that I was at one school for for nine years. And the school that I've gone into now, a lot of the teachers have either just start like just completed their ECTs or um, have been at the school for a very long time so they don't have that sort of that awareness of what a lot of other schools are like so as you you might find that as you 
complete the PGCE and, you know, either move on or not, at least you've got a lot of experience of how other schools actually operate. And you can actually spot then what works and maybe what doesn't work for some people. So I've Hmm. certainly found that it could be a a valuable thing going forward that you've got that varied uh, journey up to now. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, every school is very different. And I've certainly got some opinions that have been developed over the course of working in a variety of schools as to what works, what doesn't, but also keeping in mind that what works at one school could be an absolute disaster in another and vice versa. Um, You know, you see on um, social media quite a lot of the debates about different behaviour approaches and what your toilet policy is going to be, all these sorts of things that they could go on forever, can't they? But actually uh, leaders have come up with these policies because they are the things that probably suit that school best at that time. Yeah, absolutely. So, I've got a I've got a situation at the moment where um, my class this year, I've got um, thirty three children. I've got um, two Nigerian children. Speak partly English. I've got um, a couple of uh, Arabic children, lots of Polish children, and lots of children from sort of deprived um, sort of um, families who need funding. Let's put it that way. Um, mm. and, and so it's a really challenging and difficult class. And what is sort of expected in terms of maths in the timetable is incredibly difficult. It's also a mixed year class as well. So it's, um, it's needed us to think quite a lot about our timetable and what's needed in maths and different mm. subjects to sort of please people who are in charge of them, but also think what is, which is what should be first, is what's best for the children. And um, and we've had to adapt how we do maths and the timetable for maths quite radically, really. So it does it does suit that kind of class and is, uh, is able to be taught, to be fair, with, mm. uh, with all of their different idiosyncrasies, if you like. Now, that's really interesting because I think something I certainly learned is that absolutely all, all of these decisions involve some degree of compromise. Mm. And if you put resources into one area, you can have to take it away from somewhere else because these things are finite. And, um, you know, when you've got those challenging classes with sort of a, maybe a high proportion of um, second language English speakers or those who don't speak much English at all, that's, mm. that's always going to be tough. But it sounds like um, what sort of been the key things do you think that have sort of allowed these students to uh, progress and achieve in their learning um it's it's very much the relationships that they've got between each other i think um many of us have put together a seating plan about 100 times and it'll carry on because children children's attitudes change to who they want to work with and you know, relationships change as in they used to be your friend, but now they're not your friend and other things happen and change that you just got sort of go roll with really. So it's being aware of those relationships and, and picking out almost it's being proactive really. And it's noticing Mm. what could be a problem before you even start. And that way your chances of success are going to be far greater if you're able to, um, preempt a lot of problems 
I think. I've actually got, um, I actually forgot, I can't believe I forgot, but I've got um, two children with EHCPs as well, where they've got one-to-one, <laughs> where one's, where one's um, autistic and the other one has got um, violent tendencies. So, <laughs> so I can't believe I forgot that one. So, you know, that kind of, that really does play a part in, every 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 aspect the challenging the challenge aspect of the task literally who is in their eyesight who are they near um their whole process in every lesson obviously with the AHCPs particularly the lad with violent tendencies is he needs to know what's going to be massive amounts of advance you know and it's a crazy lot of uh, a crazy lot of planning um I've had support from me, uh, head teacher. She's been brilliant, to be fair. Uh, like you're saying, schools are very different, and she's just been a head teacher since I started, so about two and a half years now. And she was deputy before and year six teacher before that at this school. So she's she's got a lot of empathy about um, how it feels from our side. And mm. yesterday on a on a Friday, we um, she came into our room and. We spent ninety minutes going through going through the seating plan and how we could rearrange things and where everyone would sit and it was it was a valuable thing because you having someone with a fresh pair of eyes come into a classroom where you've been for a long time it needs that sort of thing and you can work together and hopefully fingers crossed come up with uh, a process that's going to you know achieve success for the kids. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really good when you've got that support from senior managers and, and, and they know what it's like. They can empathise and and sympathise with you being in the classroom as opposed to some who maybe have been out of the classroom for quite a long time and, and maybe don't quite have that same affinity with, with um, classroom teachers who have lots of things that they need to juggle and um, yeah. lots of demands on their, on their attention and their time. Yeah, because the, um, I mean, a, a thing in, I've found in other schools and I'd imagine, um, and I know actually because I've mentored quite a few um, students who've sort of gone through their course, sort of the four-year course, is that they, um, same as teachers who have been there for a long time, don't want to sort of admit when they need a bit of help because it feels like a, a bit of a weakness. Oh, you're not, you're not capable of sorting this out for yourself sort of thing. Mm. But um, if your management is... Um, is willing to sort of be supportive in the way that I've been fortunate, then it, it, it's really valuable to be able to do that. And you've got a much better chance of being able to uh, be happy working because if you're sort of left on your own and you have to try and find the answers without any support, then it's really difficult, really difficult. Yeah, it's, uh, I think... Um... I think one of the things that certainly one of the mistakes I've made, and not not just in teaching but just in general throughout my life, has to be said, um, is is not wanting to ask for help. Mm. And it's, it's wanting to be independent, thinking I can I can do absolutely everything, and then not wanting to ask for help, not wanting to admit when actually things are getting a bit too much, and there's um, and I, and I've sort of lost track of what my what what I should be prioritizing and what. Um, yeah, is is the thing I need to do first, and actually just getting myself organised and back on track. And I, and I, I've not been very good at that in the past. And it's something I'm very cognizant of now. Is 
is actually where where am I? What do I need to do? Uh, am I confident with what I'm going to be doing? And um, actually, ju- and actually, just being open and transparent. Actually, I'm, I'm I'm stuck on this. I don't know what I'm doing with this lesson. I don't. Um, I've got an assignment to write, and that's really eating up lots of my time. And and I'm struggling to juggle all these other things that I'm supposed to be doing. And what what? How can we solve that? And I think that that's really important. And um, and it's, it's a lesson I've learned a bit late in life, but it has to be said, it's it's an important one to learn. Yeah, yeah. ditto. I agree. I'm in <laughs> I'm in the same boat. I'm in the same boat. So I'd say to anyone who's sort of in that situation, and it can be about anything, to be honest, teaching or otherwise, is that. Um, sort of speaking to someone about whatever you need help with is uh, is vitally important, and it doesn't it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. That's easy to say, but in the end, they've pretty much got the similar problems. And when it comes to people on PGCEs or um, students on the full course and things like that, they the same questions always come up. So you will never be the first person to have had that problem whatever it is and chances are the person you're speaking to has had the same problem as well Mm. what would you say have been the um things that helped you most in your early days as a teacher oh early days i think there's some i think there's some things i think there's some things that you have to go through and almost have to fail at to then become a good teacher and that's that sounds as though it's it's painful it's not it's not painful it's just it's something that people go through because if you don't if everything was perfect you would never learn and we say that to the kids don't we really we mm. say that if you know you'd much rather you make a mistake and move on from it than just go through the motions so there's there's sometimes where you have got to show a bit of resilience yourself but i would say when you're in a school, find your go-to, find your person, find that find that one that you trust, where you can tell them anything, and mm. and they will relay those experiences again that they had, and as soon as you're aware that someone else has had those experiences, it makes it makes you feel better, and they can then give you some advice, and it's okay if something goes wrong. It really is okay if something goes wrong because no one's perfect, and that is a, that is a real thing. No one is perfect. No one gets everything right all the time, and anyone says that they do, they're actually lying to you. So just be aware of that. Is that everyone's going through the same sort of thing, and if yeah. they're not currently doing it, then they have done it before. Um, so it's it's try and be resilient, but have that person that you trust, whoever it is. I think that's really good advice, and I think um, it's, it's almost a case of practicing what you preach, isn't it? Because oh, yeah. as a teacher, you're always saying to students, you know, it's okay to make mistakes. You know, that's what we're here to do: is make those mistakes and, and, and learn from them. Or we have that growth mindset attitude: you know, I can't do this. Let's change it to I can't do this yet, and and yeah. build on that and, and learn from that. But actually, it's very really hard when you, as a teacher, yeah, we're telling our students this. Am I actually doing this myself? Am I afraid of making mistakes, and therefore I just won't attempt something because I'm afraid of making a mistake in it? And I, I've had this with lessons sometimes. It's like here's a technique that I really want to try out, but I'm afraid it's going to be an absolute disaster. So I, I'm just going to 
keep stay, you know I'm gonna I'm gonna make it easy for myself. I'm just gonna do something a little bit conservative and uh, and, that, and that sort of thing. But actually, I think it's important to um, yeah try try things out and be confident, having that resilience when things don't go your way. And mm. it's always those lessons when um, and actually something I found is is those lessons where things go wrong can often turn into some of the best lessons. Um, I remember I had one where the the projector just died and all the IT infrastructure died and suddenly yeah. I was left with a board and a pen and I had to teach the lesson like that but it worked well it was a good lesson in the end and it was just yeah. uh, I wasn't I didn't feel constrained by the technology anymore it could be a bit more fluid and um sort of a bit more back and forth but yeah no absolutely it's really good advice so a question here in the chat here saying um do you think people in training get enough uh, learning and send um that's a, that's a good question because I have to admit, in my course so far, we've had quite a limited amount of exposure to send education and send needs and SEMH. So, what what's your experience of that been like? Oh wow! I tell you what, it's um, it's changed a lot over the fifteen years that I've completed. Um, I think that I think the danger is. I think the danger is that you have other support in class or you have a TA or you have interventions that go on. And I think there's a danger that you, as a teacher, because you've got so many balls to juggle, mm. is that you almost leave it to someone else. And I don't mean, you know, you don't care about the children or anything else. It's just, or you don't plan for it. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about maybe you pass on the group of children who are SEND um, because you've got your target children, you know, and you've got your um, greater depth as well that you've got to push. You've got so many things that you've got to do at one time. There's a, there's a trap that you can leave those children who struggle at most things with another adult to mm. sort of, like you said, like I said before, to sort of go through the motions, if you like, and achieve as much as they can. But you'll know that you know that they'll not get age related and things like that. That's a that's a trap I've fallen into before, because now in from the year I started to now, the number of SENDs is just shooting up because there's <laughs> there's far more scope for conditions or um, needs that children have now that they didn't have 15 years ago mm. and even though the funding for um for SEND is is awful and that's it i know my council are getting offsteaded at the moment i'm gonna i can't wait to see their offsted report mm. you know the fun the funding for for things is is, is awful but the number of children who are getting assessed is continuous. It's just coming up and up and up. So the, the ways of, of managing and supporting these children, you've got to know more and more about that as you go along, without a doubt, because they'll become your biggest, your biggest group in your class soon, without a doubt. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's um, I'm, I'm really keen to do a show uh, later on this year on SEND and SEMH in particular, because I think it is something that probably isn't discussed enough on teacher training programs at least at least not in my experience it's not that it's not been covered at all or it's just been completely ignored 
it's just not been um, perhaps as prominent as maybe it, it could or should be, because as you say, the number of students with EHCPs are increasing, or not even EHCPs, but just send needs in general is going up. And I, and what you said earlier about um, having a teaching assistant in the class, I must admit, I've, I've fallen into this trap myself because when you've got a TA in the class, it's very easy just to leave the TA working with your SEND students and yeah. just thinking, and, and just assuming that the work you want to be done is getting done. And, um, and I think one of the things that I, I've tried consciously now to do is, is asking not every lesson necessarily, but where I've got a TA asking my TA if they could perhaps work with the higher ability students mm. who need that extra stretch. And then actually I'll, I'll spend that lesson trying to sort of do more one-on-one work or small group work during tasks with my SEND students. Because I think actually, and that's one thing that's really helped me doing that is I actually better, I know those students better now. I know what they're, um, what they're struggling with better than I could just looking at their profile. It it says it here, they got X, Y, and Z, this is what you need to do. But actually it's, it's less le- that's less uh, useful than actually just speaking to them and um <laughs> and spending some time working with them but no you you are right it's certainly for me having worked in international education where we had send students um but but frankly not not anywhere near as many as i've got in my classes now no. um and it, it is something that is is hard to it, it, those are skills that are really difficult to develop. But as, as you say, when you've got lots of balls that you're drug, juggling in a lesson, you want to stretch the higher abilities, but you also need and want to support the uh, students with SEN who, who may also be higher ability, but they just need that extra support and scaffolding to get them to well, achieve their what they can achieve. Exactly, yeah. I mean, the um, like I was saying before, with the help of um, I'm having from my head teacher is that, um, I did have a table. I mean, I'm teaching year three, four. I did have a table um, which was full of children because I had a one-to-one on there and all SEND because they were working so far behind the other year group, who was the majority in my class. And I wasn't keen on it, and I'm glad I sort of got support because in order to kind of spread the help for the children in that situation and also to hopefully help with uh, behavior as well we're going to try to have those children um mixed in with everyone Mm. everyone's going to be mixed in there's no sort of seating based on ability or anything like that we're moving trying to move away from it um and see see how it works basically and hopefully the peer support as well as as well as, you know, teacher support and everything else, adults will be moving around the room and everything a lot more, which hopefully will work. But hopefully then SEND can be integrated more. Don't feel as though, you know, they're sort of getting extra help. They're part of the class and we're trying to sort of think about well-being and things like that. It's all, oh, it's all a, <laughs> there's so many things that you're going to try and tick yeah. off. Hopefully the way that we're going to do it is is going to be uh, successful. So I'll let you know. No, absolutely. It's, it's, no, it's really good advice. We need to take a quick break now while we hear from our sponsors. But um, I've got another question for you after the break, if you don't mind. Yeah, that's fine. No problem. Okay. 
Are you looking for lesson planning materials to kickstart the new term? We've got you covered. The Day is a global online resource that turns the news into lessons. We're offering listeners a free resource on Andrew Tate that you can find on thedaynews.co forward slash Tate. Inspire personal development and critical thinking for your students by downloading the Tate Debate today and feel more confident addressing sensitive topics with your class. Visit thedaynews.co forward slash Tate to find out more. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools Okay, welcome back to the show, everyone. We, we've been talking, um, we've been talking to uh, about about uh, send and and how we can support our students with send uh, just before the break. And we've got a question here in the chat um, for Paul. How do how do Senkos support um, NQTs or ECTs, or how should Senkos be supporting um, perhaps trainee teachers and and newly qualified teachers? Uh, what and how does that work in your school? Yeah. Um, well, the ECT that we've had, she's just, is this a, I think she's, yeah, she has finished now. She has finished. It was last, last year was her second uh, ECT year. So um, in terms of Senkos, a lot of it is either suggest for support in class, you know, those support plans, whatever they want to call them. Uh, this week is um, it's important to think about, like you're saying, knowing those children, but what will work and what won't work from having tried it in the past. So um, those little um, those little unique things to the to the child that they're not so good at those strategies, then like manipulatives or whatever it be, would be a good idea to try. Um, so. Knowing them on your support plans, that's pretty important. That's helpful. And whether it's you, again, whether it's you work in those or whether it's your uh, other adults in the room, they need to be aware of it. So if you're aware of it, make sure they are. And that's one thing. The other thing as well is is procedures, really. And I kind of found, I did kind of find, really, that in the early stages it's just knowing the procedure. Things will things become clearer as you as you spend more time doing that job. So, one one sort of um, one sort of thing that you might think is that you need to know absolutely everything the first day you become qualified. Mm. You don't. You absolutely <laughs> do not because the thing is they change all the time. You know your 
procedures will change, your documents will change, um, the way you teach lessons will change. And one of the biggest things is just being able to adapt as a teacher to different surroundings, different situations and different um, legislation and red tape. And Senkos have got a lot of red tape. And the care, you know, most Senkos, I mean, I've got, we've got a family support worker who's amazing. I actually think she would, she should be Senko as well, to be honest, but she's, she's not because she's so busy being a family support worker. So you are doing it because you care about the children, but the Senko's job, there's so many forms. I mean, it's absolutely incredible how much, how many hoops Senko's have got to go through in order to achieve funding or support for children to get an EHCP. You need to write a doctrine. Do you know what I mean? It's absolutely crazy. So Senkos will support with procedure and what paperwork teachers need. If they're a good Senko, they will be able to do the majority of that without overloading the teacher, if you like, particularly if they're in the early stages of their career. No, it it gives me a lot of appreciation for the people who do these sorts of jobs because it it is complicated. Like you say, there's a lot of bureaucracy and that sort of thing to do and I think something that gave me a lot, particularly appreciation, when I worked in this SEMH school that I worked in, mm. seeing what an EHCP looks like, because all of our students had them, it was <laughs> an extensive document with, and it was really tracking sort of progress, what are the targets and all these sorts of things. It was it was a big document, and that's just one of many that that uh, I appreciate that um, Senkos have to deal with. And I would say something that my school did. This is my placement school um, did really really good that I really enjoyed um was we had a sort of almost like a speed dating sort of thing with um with our, our send students and we got an opportunity or um just to sort of spend five minutes talking to each of them in a in, in sort of the library just one-on-one and that was really really um that was a really good experience we had that I, I liked that I was glad that it was organized for us um just had a phone call in from Elizabeth. Um, Elizabeth, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Can you hear me? Yeah, you're quite quiet, um, yeah. but we can hear you. Yeah, okay. I put my teacher voice on. <laughs> um, Elizabeth, did you have a uh, a comment or a question or something you wanted to share? I mean, I'm I'm a send expert, so I work in a special needs um, environment and have done for quite some time. Although I have worked previously in mainstream schools. And what I would suggest to some of your listeners, and I know you're going to do uh, send more detail later on, but if any of your listeners, NQTs or what have you, or uh, newly qualified teachers would like to know a little bit more about a young person's particular condition, your local um, uh, SEND school, special needs school, can be an absolutely invaluable source of information for you. And most of us, I mean, I know from my school's point of view, we are only too willing uh, to support our mainstream colleagues with um, techniques and um, um, things that we've learnt from obviously working intensively with young people that you may be able to use in your classroom situation. So don't be shy in contacting your local um, SEND establishment. And if anybody wants to um, contact me, if they've got a, a learner who has a, any particular issues or they'd like to know a little bit more, then um, perhaps they can drop you a line and you can pass that on to me. Absolutely. That's really useful. Thank you. Um, 
Yeah, no, and I'll certainly do that. So if you've got anything you'd like to, any questions or comments that you'd like to know on um, Send, then Elizabeth Lickis, she's somebody who has just offered that. So um, that'd be really, really nice. I think um, when I I worked in this SEMH school, we were part of a multi-academy trust that included mainstream and primary. So uh, we did have, there was a bit of cross-pollination there, and I'm sure a lot of MATs will have uh, some form of alternative provision school as, as part of it. So if you work for one of those MATs, um, that then that's maybe quite easy to organise, get an experience. And even if you um, don't, I certainly would recommend going into um, Ascend school or any sort of kind of alternative provision school, because it does give you so much insight into a, a, an aspect of education I think probably most people don't get a whole lot of exposure to or um, knowledge of. Um, Elizabeth, what made you decide to work in SEND education rather than in mainstream? Well, I was in mainstream for quite a long time, um, but actually what happened was that I was, um, I went between jobs. I, I wanted to see, I wanted a little bit more experience of SEND. I have a daughter who has autism and um, I wanted to see how, how I could help in that sort of respect and found myself working um, cover teaching basically at a, a school in Cranley that's very well known for its SEND provision and I just found it hugely challenging yes but um, the remarkable developments that these young people who in this particular case because these young people were um, quite severe in their conditions um, could make the, the difference that a, a teacher who really cared and the TAs and the techniques that you could make to these young people um, was incredible. And I found it a challenge that I've never really stopped uh, wanting to explore because we have so much talent tied up in young people who have various diagnoses from ADHD to ASD, uh, Smith-Mengenis syndrome, all sorts of different complications and challenges they might have. But when you find a way of supporting them, a way of uh, showing them that they can be a success and a young leader in their own right. Wow, that, that's a high. I mean, that's a real high. When you send one of these youngsters into the world and they get a job or they go to university or, you know, they, they, they are able to stand on their own two feet and actually cope with the world, whereas before, you know, they'd been written off in some ways. I, 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 it's, it's something that I've never turned my back on, and uh, it's a vocation for me. Absolutely. I think that's, that's a really good answer, and a really sort of, I hear, hear the passion sort of coming through there about um, the, the, the challenge and actually the reward, um, that, that the sense of a, a reward and achievement that you get from that sort of work. What What is the, what should, and I, I mean this sort of more generally, what should be our end goal with SEND? What, what, what are we ultimately hoping to achieve? We're hoping that those young people can make the maximum progress uh, within their capabilities. We want to open up new avenues for them. We want them to help. You know, when you talk about behaviour, and I, honestly, mainstream um, colleagues, I do understand where you are. It's really very difficult when you've got a class of 30 and you've got one young person who's expressing themselves through behaviour because behavior is a, a way of communicating it may not be the, the communication you want in a class of 30 
but that young person's communicating to you that they're struggling, they haven't got the words to say, so it's coming out in other ways, or maybe they're very traumatised because of what's happened in the past. Um, I think what we want those young people to be able to do is to learn the strategies that they need to learn in order to access the curriculum and their life opportunities going forward. That's a real challenge in whether it's a mainstream school or a SEND school to be able to, to do, but there is so much out there and so many techniques and so many uh, things that we can use. My concern is that for young people or people going into education that we're not really exploring those enough on their courses and preparing them enough because our mainstream schools do have a lot of young people who have various diagnoses. And that, that was my first question to um, your other caller was how much support is he getting? How much support does a young person, um, I'm saying young person, but they could be a mature student, going in um, as a teacher, how much support and how much um, of their training is dedicated to SEND? So, uh, yeah, um, I, I think I interrupted you earlier, Paul. Sorry about that. But did you want to answer that question? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's obviously going to vary uh, between schools, I would have thought. I think from what I've seen is that over the years it's increased far more. It's certainly, it's certainly become a larger part of your overall teaching. Um, I don't think there's, I don't think there's a, a massive amount of um, support given to find always. Um, sort of right way of putting this, the uh, practices that would be best suited. Um, there may just be, say, a standard three or four practices or methods or anything else that might work generally for children in that, in that situation, whereas you need far more than that because children are complex, as you know, and there's so many different uh, needs so many varied needs and those four or five that you're given on teacher training will not cut it when you get to to deal with a, a mass of children over the years so like I said though as well it's it's about keeping up with those you're not going to learn everything on the first day of your job or you're not going to have everything in place in the first day of your job so it's being open-minded um, and the support that you get should be encouragement and opportunity to to find those other practices and then be able to use those practices and then discuss them with colleagues as well. And do you think, Paul, that uh, a school like mine, I mean, I've got four schools in central London, do you think it's, um, it's a good idea for us to actually uh, lend our support and, and be more active ourselves in, in um, throwing open the doors to our colleagues in um, mainstream to say, come in, have a look around, we'll share uh, good practice with you for particular learners, because obviously we have every sort of child coming through our doors, so we, we, we specialise in that area. If you're a mainstream, you don't necessarily have that specialist knowledge, um, and I'm just wondering whether it would be a useful thing for our SEND colleagues to um, reach out more to our mainstream colleagues with support and help in this area. 
Yeah, I would. To be honest, I'd set her up as a regular CPD every year. Um, if you've got four four schools in uh, in London, I can tell you there's going to be plenty of schools who would take you up on that. Because, like you say, we we only see pretty much what is in front of us. The opportunities we get to to go and see um, specialist settings are few and far between. You know, um, there's there's a lot of collaborative work sort of where where I am sort of northwest. And I know schools are doing that, they're working together in clusters and, and things like that, but those clusters won't necessarily include schools like yourself. And so I would I would open up as a, a CPD and try and get people in there because I don't think there's... I think there's lots of good CPD and opportunities and things you can pick up from different types of uh, training, but I don't think there's many better than actually watching someone teach another class where you can just sit and watch and get the ideas from actually observing. I think that's really important and really useful. Well, that's a challenge uh, we've laid down there for uh, myself and colleagues. <laughs> <laughs> in that area. Um, I go back to the boss. I know he's very keen on opening up our provision to uh, support uh, pupils where, wherever they happen to be in the career mainstream, obviously. A lot of our students go back into mainstream after being with us because that's one of our um, raison d'etres. But, you know, uh, it, it just seems to me that um, I know when I was um, teacher training, I didn't have, I think we spent about a day on SEND education in my training. And yeah. the things I've learned has been, has been since. And, you know, it doesn't seem to have improved an awful lot, except we've got more SEND youngsters in our mainstream schools now. So it's something, it's a gap that we need to fill. I think it's a really interesting um, discussion there because when I when I started at my current placement school, we had a um, big sort of all-staff assembly from our headmaster and he something he said, which has really stuck with me and really resonated with me, is schools work really well when teachers talk about teaching, which is exactly what we're doing here now, but also when teachers observe other teachers and that's as a student teacher, that's something you get to do quite a lot. And of course, um, student teachers are always observed. But I understand that once you're qualified and you, you're out into the big wide world and you're by yourself often in a classroom, you don't get the opportunity so much. And something my school does is they have a an observation program, um, but it is within the school mostly. And actually, what I'm hearing between you two and what Paul said is, you know, it needs to be annual CPD to have um, send provision sort of instruction and, and uh, professional development there. And maybe getting our send colleagues to deliver some of these workshops and opportunities to go into these sorts of schools and actually see what's going on is a really valuable, uh, is a really valuable piece of CPD and, and experience that I do think it is important that we, we get more exposure to. Certainly, if I hadn't worked in, in 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 the school that I worked in for, and it wasn't for it wasn't for very long. It was only during my sort of break from the PGCE. It, it it's given me a huge amount of knowledge that I, I I really value having now. Um, we're just we're coming towards the end of the show today. I'm just going to hit take a final break from while we hear from our sponsors, and I'm just interested to hear after the break, um, just to sort of sort of wrap this up because it's been a really interesting discussion, um. 
for, with Elizabeth and Paul, we're talking about same provision. Are you looking for lesson planning materials to kickstart the new term? We've got you covered. The Day is a global online resource that turns the news into lessons. We're offering listeners a free resource on Andrew Tate that you can find on thedaynews.co forward slash Tate. Inspire personal development and critical thinking for your by downloading the Tate Debate today and feel more confident addressing sensitive topics with your class. Visit thedaynews.co forward slash Tate to find out more. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools... Welcome back to the show, everyone. It's been a bit bit of a different sort of show today because I, I started off by reflecting upon my experiences, my teaching journey, um as a an unqualified teacher and now doing my pgce sort of halfway through my pgce having split experience and um we've been having a really interesting conversation i've been having a really interesting conversation with paul who works in a mainstream school and elizabeth who works in a sense school and so just in the last few minutes of the show i we i just want to just touch on a little bit more about observations because Something Paul said was that he'd really appreciate having annual CPD um, on, on send education and having more opportunities to go and visit um, in, 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 in visit send and schools. And Elizabeth saying maybe that's something we need to set up. So I'm just interested to hear about those, maybe about the practicalities of that and what those observations might look like. Um, what what how would they work and how could we get the most value out of that? Um, so Paul, do you want to start off? Yeah, um, I've oh God, so many observations, both been watched and and watching other people. I think the I think the importance is, you know, it's got to be in in the classroom. It's got to be as close and as real as possible. You're never going to get it perfectly. Perfectly, if someone comes into your class, for example, um, or even if it's their own class. Everyone's relationship with children is is different because it's different children. You're never going to get it absolutely perfect as it would be for you, but you can get as close as damn it, really. So I was saying before, my class is a year three, four. Um, My head teacher in her support has suggested that I go and look um, at a year three, four class, which is at a school not too far from us. They've got a SEMH unit as well. So the behavior issues that maybe I've had in my class that I can learn more about and maybe learn more ways to to deal with, I would hopefully be able to see one or two things I've not seen before 
in this class and it's picking things that are as close as as the experience as the situations that you're in it's no good going to and I've done it before to be honest it's no good going to if you're in a deprived area with um a number of EHCPs and this that and the other it's no good going to a leafy school <laughs> a leafy <laughs> school with 20 children who are all well behaved and all high ability it's just it's a waste of time because unless you're actually in that setting what are you going to get from it you know so relevance is important I think um and and just as much as possible to be honest you know it, we mm. don't get to go out of class every day for obvious reasons yeah and so whatever you can whatever you can get take it and just try and make it as as relevant practices as possible no i think absolutely i think something i said earlier is is, is just say yes take those opportunities when and as yeah. they come up now, now elizabeth i understand you said you work in several schools in central london so these are not going to be i'm going to make an assumption here leafy uh sort of very sort of affluent sort of schools. Um, if you were to have uh, mainstream colleagues come into your schools, what would you want to, what would be your sort of emphasis that you'd want them to get out of it? I think it would depend on why they were coming in. It may be if it's a particular um, teacher who wants to know more about ASD or ASC and how to, um, in you know, what sort of techniques are available to them to be able to use with their ASC student, then obviously we would put them with uh, learners appropriate age um, who may have that diagnosis and they can observe um, the TAs and the teachers working with the various techniques that we use with ASC learners so that they can take that back into the classroom. If, for instance, uh, one of the issues they want to um, learn a little bit more about is, is behaviour, behaviour that's coming from a point of anxiety um, and it's due to um, additional needs. We all know that there are youngsters who have behaviour who has not got anything to do with their diagnosis but when talking about anxiety provoked behaviour and if that's a, a challenge for them and they, that's where they want to um, focus their, their, their observations then it's, it's working alongside the behaviour specialists in a, a school like ours to be able to see how they unpick a young person's um, issues with maybe coping with a particular um, <coughs> situation. So it may be um, sitting in a debrief session. How, how, how do you debrief a young person after they've had an incident? How do you um, help them to understand what they could have done at various stages of that um, process to have changed the outcome? What sort of tool tools could they use to help to... Um, control their own behaviour and take uh, to be able to um, deal with their own issues because at the end of the day quite often behaviour is communication it's a it may not be as I said the communication we would like them to use but they're trying to tell you something's not quite right and that they haven't got the words or they haven't got in when they've got the mist come down they haven't got the words to be able to to tell you so it's helping them to unpick speaker that if it's general it's looking at a class that is more akin to your own class in age group and um, variety and seeing just seeing how 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 we how we uh, produce a, a lesson a, if it's 
GCSE English, going into a GCSE English class and taking a look at how a SEND teacher produces that GCSE curriculum for learners that have a variety of different um, uh, complex um, conditions because it would be quite interesting. At the end of the day, my children take GCSEs. It's the same GCSEs as they take in mainstream, but our approach to that GCSE lesson might look very different. So if you're an English teacher, you might want to pop in um, to an English class, a GCSE class, and just get some experience of how maybe you can adjust a few things to make it easier for your SEND uh, learner. <laughs> That's really good advice. It's, it's having having a focus for your observation, isn't it? It's uh, it's having a if if it's behaviour, maybe you need to see a behaviour specialist list, see how they deal with that behaviour, and and uh, you mentioned the mist that comes down. You know what what's your approach to dealing with that? Because um, there's always going to be that they, there's definitely sort of transferable incidents that happen all between all sorts of schools, and again, sort of gen general as well, um, general class and dynamics and routines that happen because we are going to be able to learn from them. Uh, Paul and Elizabeth, I really appreciate you calling in because um, that's a really interesting discussion uh, there on SEM provision. And we will be talking about this more on, on the show later on. So if you're a SEND expert or you or, or at SEMH or something like that and you'd like to be a guest on the show, please let me know because I am really keen to talk and dig into this more. Uh, so thank you, Paul and Elizabeth, for calling in. I hope you enjoy the rest of your weekend. But we're out of time for today. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. Cheers, Sam. Okay, so everyone, I hope you um, have enjoyed the show today. Enjoy the rest of your weekend and hopefully see you next time on the show. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.